This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. In the early 1950s, author Jerry Viss was sent to a strict Adventist boarding school in Virginia. In this short memoir, he recalls a school that was definitely not to his liking or fitting his character, where he was dubbed Jerry Vice. Nudity and trash cans play a role in this tale of how he painted himself into a corner and out again. Jerry Viss spent the earliest years of his life in Patterson, New Jersey, where he was born in 1939 into a blue-collar family struggling to overcome the lingering effects of the Great Depression. He has an MFA in fine art and taught for many years in public school and college. He is the author of Patterson Boy, My Family and Other Strangers, a memoir in 28 stories, and is presently finishing a new story collection. Trash Can Blues, written by Jerry Viss, read by Andrew Riley. You'll have to get up early tomorrow so I can put you on the 6 a.m. bus to Newark. That was my father, who had consigned me to an Adventist boarding school, the Shenandoah Valley Academy in Virginia. I don't want to go. Your vacation time is over. Ever. Ever? What do you mean, ever? I told you I hate it down there. I want to go to Central High right here in Patterson. Rosalind, did you hear your son? I can't believe this. She came back over to the supper table and sat down. Yes, I heard it, and it doesn't surprise me. No, my father said. Why not? I was just within a breath of mimicking, Rosalind, did you hear your son? in a whiny voice. He didn't wait for my mother to answer. Well, you have to go back. You can't change schools in the middle of the year. They won't let you. I counter-challenged. Henrietta and Johnny came into my class after Christmas in fourth grade. You can't do that in high school. It's not allowed. Why? I hate Shenandoah. You're just homesick. No, I'm not, I said, and I wasn't. That had passed quickly in my first week at Shenandoah Valley Academy when I realized the difference between the specific distress of homesickness and that of general misery. Your mother and I have sacrificed to give you this Christian education. Who asked you to, I thought. I had lost all my childhood friends and was no longer able to see my grandparents. They disapproved of my father's new religion. I wasn't allowed to go to movies, which I loved so much, because it was a sin, as was playing chess. I felt like someone was always watching me, and worst of all, I felt like my arms were glued to my sides and my legs were glued from my hips to my knees. 
The high school here in Patterson is not a suitable place for you. Give Shenandoah Valley Academy more time. It's probably just homesickness. No, 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 I yelled. I was starting to lose it. They're just plain mean and stupid down there. They think my last name is Weiss. That's how they say it, Jerry Weiss. They think I'm evil because I come from sinful New York City. They're all so dumb. Everyone there is dumb? I don't think so. Not everyone, but a lot of the kids think that way. They think Patterson, New Jersey is New York City. I was tired of hiding behind my smooth face and being made to feel guilty. For what? Nothing. For doing what I'd liked to do. For doing what I had been allowed to do before my father got religion. The bus from Patterson dropped me off at the Newark train station where I would take the train to Virginia. I had a fleeting impulse to hitchhike back to Virginia, but my heart wasn't into such an adventure. It also wasn't realistic to think I could get a ride to Dixie standing in the middle of the Newark station. So I got on the train. My mother's parents had me swear on the Bible never to join my father's church, and they subversively gave me a portable radio for Christmas, knowing that it was against the boarding school rules to have one. I had to sneak it into my room in my suitcase. Portable radios were a relatively new phenomenon. It was half the size of a toaster, took six size A batteries, and weighed a ton. It provided a small recompense for my misery. I had to keep it secret if I didn't want to get it confiscated. I even kept it secret from my roommate at first. But once I listened to the one and only local radio station, it was impossible to keep the radio secret or my mouth shut. Listen to this, I blurted out to Charlie. It was full bore, out-and-out hillbilly music. Why I was surprised was a product of my naivete. In 1952, Rock and roll was beginning to supplant the crooners up north. I was listening to Bill Haley and the Comets, Les Paul, Mary Ford, and even that King Cole, though he was more jazz than rock and roll. I found the music of Kitty Wills, Hank Snow, Hank Williams, big country stars then, very uncool and grating to my ears. After basking in my roommate's awe over my radio and making him swear not to tell anyone about it, I forced him to listen to what sounded twanging and out of key. He liked it. But you're from New Jersey. What do you mean you like it? What, I can't like country music if I'm from New Jersey? I mean, why don't you like it? You like it just because we have something to listen to. It's one silly, sad song after another. He's mean. She walked out. My dog died. That kind of stuff. You know, it's about real stuff, what really happens to people. You're not in New Jersey. Get used to it. Besides, it's the only station we can get. I had to admit that the music was at least a distraction, a refreshing breath of perversity in our lives, and our only link to the outside world. The radio station began broadcasting for the day at two in the morning, for farmers, I suppose, and went off the air at eight at night. Newscasts often started with things like hog prices, followed by the local news. Only major events beyond the valley were ever mentioned. When I finally accepted that rock and roll was never going to be on this one and only station, 
I settled back and began to listen out of curiosity. Before long, I actually got to the place where I was singing along. To this day, I can still remember a few lines from Kitty Wells' Honky Tonk Angels. It took a bit of time, but I had to admit I liked the new boy's dean, Mr. Riley. He was kind, personable, and unusually creative at handing out discipline, something I discovered firsthand. One of the issues I swore I would address when I first saw my dorm room was to get rid of the bilious puke-green color on the walls. I made a special trip to the hardware store in Harrisonburg and bought two gallons of paint, a mossy green and a forest green. It was the fashion then to paint one wall of a room a different but related color. My roommate said, eh, I can live with it, which meant he didn't want to help me paint. It took me several days to complete the work, moving the furniture, prepping the walls, and then painting two coats on everything. I painted three walls a warm, mossy green, and the fourth a forest green. I don't know why Mr. Riley didn't notice the strong smell of paint. Several days after I finished painting the room, he politely knocked on the door. I knew it was him because no one else would knock. I invited him in. He moved three steps into the room, stopped, turned around several times, and then faced me as I sat on my bunk bed. He stood there with his mouth open but didn't speak. I finally relented and asked, Did you want to see Charlie or me? Charlie was out at work. Did you paint this room? Yeah. Then it's you I want to talk to. He turned around to take another look. You're not allowed to paint your room. You knew that, didn't you? When the previous dean had gone over the list of do's and don'ts, painting of any kind was not on the list. Putting common sense aside, I answered sweetly, Oh, I didn't know that. He turned back to face me again. Well, you can't. I want this room returned to its original color he said as he spun slowly around once more. Why did you paint it anyway? The puke green was depressing me. I couldn't do my homework with that color all around me. I felt like something slimy was crawling on me. He looked at me in a questioning way, but didn't react. Instead, he said, Well, you did an excellent job. Was I supposed to thank him? Where'd you learn to paint so well? I started when I was six, helping my mother. She was always redecorating our house. I liked doing it. Then my father showed me how to cut in. He had a painting business for a while. Cut in? Not get paint on the glass. Oh, he said. Why green? Wasn't it green before? Well, it wasn't real green. It was a whooshy color that made the room feel like a prison. Now I like coming back to my room. It feels snug and comfortable. Well, you certainly did a perfect job. There isn't a spot of paint on the floor or ceiling, and the window is immaculate. Not a dot on the glass. No missed spots either. I wasn't sure where this was going, but started to feel that there might be another shoe to drop. In addition to repainting this room right away, your punishment will be to paint the entry door windows in the front hall, including the transom and side lights, inside and out, at least two coats. And he added, to my satisfaction. You'll start this Sunday morning. It was my first opportunity to experience his unique creativity, and in this case, his opportunistic fast thinking. I was stuck, 
In that fine old southern colonial tradition, there were sixty-four panes of glass in, over, and alongside the door to be cut in. With two coats inside and out, that was 248 panes of glass. And it must be done before next Friday at sundown. I gulped. Why by then? The boys' open house is a week from this Sunday. I knew about the open house, but it wasn't a concern for me until that moment. I replied, I, I need to do my floor polishing job every afternoon. It will take longer than all next week, maybe even longer, to get the windows painted and do my job. Can't the maintenance crew do the windows? No. The open house is to show off our home. It's our job to make it look good. I'll have someone else polish the floors. Being new, he didn't understand the exclusive lock I kept on that job. I was the only one at school who could figure out how to run the buffing machine. There is no one else. I'm the only one who can run the buffer. I told him the whole story of how that came about. Then just do the floors in the boys' dorm. It suddenly dawned on me that I had some leverage in this situation. Maybe it would help if someone moves the furniture and puts it back. And could I wait till the end of the year to paint my room? I can't go back to that awful prison green color. You did do a good job, but I can't give the impression that it's okay for other boys to paint their rooms too. I will make it clear to everyone that you are painting the windows downstairs as a punishment, which it is, he added, as if to convince himself. It was a nip-and-tuck race to complete the painting work by Friday evening. The dean supplied me with the oil-based paint, a stepladder, and a miserable paintbrush, which I threw out. I used the one I had brought from home. Some things in life are inexplicable. One of them was the fact that I was not only very good at painting windows, but I also loved to do it. Plus, it brought me all kinds of attention, which was fine until that attention spread to my room. My room became a must-see in the dorm. I had also added drapes to the windows, a nicer rug on the floor, and I bought a small desk lamp with the money my Uncle Phil gave me to study Russian. But that's another story. Oh, well, sorry, Uncle Phil. Molly Schwartz, our neighbor back in Patterson who watched me while my mother worked, had an aphorism. Nothing should ever be a total loss. That applied in this instance, but there was also a downside. The boys in the senior class, who had been the bane of my existence, but thankfully lost interest in me for a while, rediscovered me because of the painting. They decided to make good on an earlier threat to toss me out of the third-floor window. I made the mistake of taking showers at the same time each afternoon. Most of the boys showered after work or in the morning, but I was still on the short side of puberty. I couldn't risk the attention I knew my hairless body would bring. They found me in the bathroom just stepping out of the shower one afternoon, about a week after the open house. Well, now here's the little homo, said Delmar. Prettying up any other rooms lately? They dragged me from the shower and repeated their suspending me in the air upside down, poking and pinching me all over routine. We thought you were a little girl in disguise here, but you're not. You're a fag decorator, piece of trash. They headed toward the open bathroom window. We need to get rid of this garbage. Let's throw him out. I began to scream and thrash. I was partway out the window for the second time in that school year, scared to death, when one of the boys said, 
I've got a better idea. A better idea than throwing me out the third floor window? What? That could only mean something worse, maybe being set on fire. They pulled me back in, whispered among themselves, as several of them held me to subdue my thrashing. I was utterly terrified. What was worse than throwing me out of a third floor window? They stuck me, head first, into one of the four-foot-tall trash cans in the hall and rolled me down two flights of stairs into the front entry hall. At that very moment, Mr. Riley, wondering what was causing all the noise, stepped out of his apartment door into the path of the trash can as it and I crashed into his legs at full speed. I was thankful to be alive, at least in the short hall, as I extricated myself from the trash and the can. At that point I had no idea what had cut my journey short. The dean did nothing to help me. He just stood there, waiting to see what was oozing out of the mangled container. I got to my feet, light-headed and wobbly, from the spinning trip down the long flights of stairs. Naturally, the senior boys were nowhere to be seen. Mr. Viss, can you tell me what this is about? How refreshing. He pronounced my name correctly. With the space around me still whirling, I struggled to stay upright. I'm so dizzy, was all I could muster. Can you tell me, Mr. Viss, why you are naked, wet, and climbing out of this broken trash can? The senior class boys who had rolled me down the stairs suddenly reappeared, along with the boys from the dorm office, more boys from the dorm lounge, and a few returning from work. They all gathered around in a gigantic, snickering circle. I was crouched down in a tight knot trying my hardest to be invisible. Stand up straight and look me in the eye, the dean said. I have three things to say to you. First, go upstairs and get dressed. Second, come back down and clean up this mess. Third, come to my office. When I arrived in his office, he was busy looking over some papers. It took a minute for him to acknowledge my presence. He looked up and calmly and matter-of-factly told me that I must take my own trash can, fill it with crumpled paper, throw it out the third-floor bathroom window, go downstairs and pick it all up, then go back upstairs and do it again, all afternoon, every afternoon, for a total of ten hours. I wanted to tell him about the senior boys, that it was their fault. They should be punished, not me, I shouted in my head. When he finished talking, he just stared at me. He was expressionless, except for a tiny, how are you, I'm fine grin. He wasn't cold, nor did he seem vindictive or judgmental. He may as well have been saying, I think we're going to have an early spring this year. Caught totally off guard, I couldn't move. I just stood there, looking back at him with a dumb, mouth-hanging-open look on my face. It took some time for me to absorb what he was telling me. I had never heard of such a punishment. Getting sent to detention for life was the kind of thing I expected. As I stood there, I began to visualize the whole process. Crumple up paper, and it had to be twenty pieces of typing paper. Stuff the paper in the trash can. I had just bought the trash can from my room. Walk across the hall and through the bathroom, open the window, throw the trash can out, watch it fall and scatter, 
close the window, go downstairs, pick everything up, and do it again, and again. At various points in the process, I'd accumulate an audience of bemused boys with helpful hints like, put a top on the can, or tie a rope to it to pull it back up. By the end of the first afternoon of my punishment, the trash can was completely destroyed. At one point, when I went downstairs, I found my roommate Charlie resting on the grass near the mangled can. His arms were folded comfortably behind his head, and he was staring straight up at the sky. Where'd you come from? I asked. Work. I'm done for the day. Then why are you here? Thought I'd keep an eye on things. Make sure you're not cheating. How would I do that? Oh, maybe you only have eighteen pieces of paper instead of twenty. Another day, when I went outside to gather up the scattered papers, I found Charlie lying on a blanket on his side, with his head propped up on one arm. When Mr. Riley came around the corner of the building, Charlie didn't move. He just smiled up at the dean. Mr. Riley said hello to him, with a conspiratorial smile on his face. I can't do this anymore, I said to the dean. The trash can's too broke. Could I get another one? Broken, he corrected. Then no, not unless you own another trash can. Keep using the same can. He stood there while I scooped up the papers as best I could. How will you know when I'm finished? You keep track of the time. Let me know when you're done. I trust you. Then he turned and walked away. Charlie snickered behind his hand. He's crazy, you know, Charlie said. Yeah, he is, but he's better than you. At least he trusts me. I laughed, too. And that's how I came to like and trust Mr. Riley. This story is copyright 2020 by Jerry Viss. The recording is copyright 2020 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.